Thank you, Sarah and worship team. You may be seated, and uh, can we give a, a warm welcome to Taylor and to my sister, Courtney, who are both joining us this morning and leading us in worship. Um, we're so grateful for you. Um, good morning again. Uh, welcome to worship here at St. John's once more. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm the pastor here. And whether you're joining us in person, whether you're joining us at home, we're just grateful that we have the privilege of being here. If it's your first time worshiping with us, we want to especially welcome you and encourage you to fill out a Connect card. It's digital these days, just like lots of other things. And you can uh, scan the QR code on the screen, go to the URL. Um, if you're online, there's a link right in the description. And if you're new and you fill that out, it's our opportunity that we get to reach out to you and say thank you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Um, also, if you have a prayer request, if there's something we can help with, um, it, whether you're new or not, we would love to hear from you that way. So please consider filling that out. Um, if you'd like to give an offering as an act of worship, uh, we don't pass the plate here at St. John's, and that's not something new over the last year. We haven't done that for many years, not because the offering isn't important, but because it's an act of worship. And so we encourage you to do that at the link on the screen in the description. You can text it, or if you're here in person, there is an offering box as you enter and exit the sanctuary. A uh, couple of announcements that I want to share with you, some things that are coming up quick. Uh, the first one, and I know we have a lot of parents and grandparents at this service, um, first communion class is going to be this upcoming Wednesday, March 31st at 6 p.m. It's an opportunity for children, typically around second to fourth grade. We can, we can kind of wiggle that a little bit if your child is ready a little early or hasn't been through it at that point. Um, but we invite that child as well as at least one parent or grandparent to join us that night to learn about communion. What is it? What does the Bible say? And then after that, on Easter Sunday at the 1030 service, those children are going to help me consecrate communion. And uh, so that'll be a wonderful celebration as they receive it for the first time with all of you. And that leads into the Easter services. Actually, first of all, we've got Good Friday service, which will be that Friday at 6 p.m. That'll be both in person and online. And then Easter worship is all the same worship times we normally have on a Sunday. 7.45 is our traditional service. 9 o'clock is our contemporary and 10.30 is our contemporary. They will be indoors, online, and the 10.30 service, I'm really excited about, is going to be called Easter on Broad Street. Now, now I, I've been getting a lot of comments wondering if there's going to be some, like the Rockettes are going to come, or I'm going to do some singing and dancing. It's not like that. We're, we're literally on Broad Street, and so we close the street. We're going to worship outside, and uh, that's going to allow people who maybe aren't comfortable yet coming and joining us in person to do so. So we're really excited, and we're praying that the weather in two Sundays is just as good or better than it is this morning. So um, please join us for worship then. Uh, last but not least, I, I want to give you an update. Uh, thank you to Wendy Ellsworth, who shared at the service last Sunday um, about our missionaries in Kenya. Holly and Fred Akoth are missionaries to Kenya, and uh, they're missionaries that we have supported for many, many years. Holly is from Walworth County, and they were planning on coming back to Wisconsin uh, to be able to share some of the things that God is doing in Kenya. They were supposed to actually already have left. They're supposed to be coming this week. Um, however, last week, their whole family came down with COVID-19. 
and all of them were very sick, but Holly was the most severe, and last Sunday, while we were worshiping together, uh, she was being admitted in the emergency room and ended up spending the better part of this last week in the hospital. But thanks be to God, I'm so grateful that I get to report to you that her condition has improved significantly. Uh, She was discharged from the hospital just a couple of days ago, and she's resting at home. So can we praise God for just... um I know for his, for his sovereignty, for his goodness, and on behalf of their family, I know they are just so grateful for each and every one of your prayers. And so uh, as, we, as we enter into worship now, I want to encourage you, um, open up your Bible. Our reading today is in Mark chapter 10. And as you open that up, let's, let's begin with another word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you are God, that you are good, that you are with us always. We, pray, we praise you for the times that you answer our prayers in the affirmative and, and exactly what our heart desires. And we praise you for the times when you don't because we know that that does not mean that you are not there, but that you are there working in a way that is still mysterious to us. Help us to submit to that mystery now as we come before you. As we open up your word, help us to let go of our own wisdom and our own truth that we might take up yours And that it might speak to us through your spirit to change us to become more like you when we leave than when we came. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our reading today is Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can can you drink from the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink from the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are uh, four children in my home. If you've been around for a while, you've heard illustrations about all of them. What you might not know is that I also grew up as the oldest of four children. The youngest of us is my sister Courtney, who's joining us today. So that's pretty exciting. And I have learned growing up in a bigger family and being a bigger family today that there are some universal challenges that only households with multiple children are probably aware of. For example, one of them is our cup collection. (laughs) Now, our oldest son, Jacob, when he was born, he had some, some intestinal issues, and, and so we had to find the perfect bottle for him that didn't allow too much air to be released, didn't allow too much milk or formula or whatever, and so we ended up buying every kind of bottle that they sell. 
And then after that, we bought every kind of sippy cup that they sell. And after that, we bought every kind of regular cup that they sell, hoping to find just the right one with the right balance of liquid that doesn't choke the child while they're learning how to drink. And there's a problem, of course, with this. That after all of that happening, and now not just do we have those cups that we bought for function, but we also had to buy the cups that look nice, the shapes and sizes the kids like to drink from. And after going through this process with four children, and I will say to a lesser degree, if we have five or six children, they're going to be drinking out of the garden hose. We're not going to buy any more cups. But, but we have a lot of cups in our house, tons of cups, more cups than I think we have children on our block. And even though we have more cups than we know what to do with. Inevitably, there is always this one single cup that all the children want to drink from at the same time. Doesn't matter. They all want to drink from the favorite cup. They fight over it. They have to have it. And then as they get older, it shifts, and eventually they do something that's even worse. They look to my cup, and they say, Dad, I want to drink from your cup. And I tell them, no, you can't drink from my cup because you're not going to like what I'm drinking in my cup because I'm usually drinking coffee and it's black. I don't put any sugar in it and it's gross to a kid. You're not going to like it. But if you've had a little kid that wants to drink from your cup, you know they don't listen, do they? They just keep asking. And so eventually they wear you down and they wear me down and I make sure that it's not too hot and I say, fine, you can drink it. And they drink it and what do they do? Ugh. And most of the time, they say fine, and they, they don't want to drink it anymore. Every once in a while, you get one that's a little smart, and they do the same thing with their face, and I say, do you like it? And they go, yeah, it was good. They're dealing with pride early on in life. They, they don't ask to have, you want some more? No, that's okay, Dad, that was enough. <laughs> it's disgusting. And the reason it's disgusting is because they've been watching me drink it for so long, they know I like it, right? Because I have it every single day. But in their heads, they imagine it to be something very different from what it actually is. Well, in our scripture reading today, instead of four siblings, we have 12 disciples. And just like my children, they're, they're around the rabbi Jesus, and they're asking if they can have a sip of his cup and they think they know what's inside but really they have no clue now we're in our fifth week of this series we're, we're calling it back to the basics as we're walking through the season of lent as we're preparing for easter by getting back to the very basics of our faith uh, just this past week I, I met with a number of pastors from our county and one of the questions that was asked of us was, was what are your churches doing for Easter? Anything exciting? Anything fun? And, and one of the pastors, he responded, he said, we're having it. <laughs> We're having it. Like, like the thing that was exciting to him and that's exciting to all of us, it really wasn't anything too extraordinary that was shared. It's just the simple fact that we get to celebrate Easter this year. That after the year that we've been through, we get to worship. We get to celebrate the resurrection, whether it's inside, outside, or online. We get to celebrate Easter. It's basic. But the first thing we learned this, the first week of this series is that basic doesn't always mean easy. And, and then sometimes, like today, what we learn is that if the basics are simple on the surface to understand, it begs a different question. Why does it take so long to click? Why does it take so long 
to get it. And that's how we begin as we get into our gospel reading. Now, I want to take us through three sections in the gospel of Matthew. And so every week I tell you to bring your Bible. I mean it because we're going to climb through this and I want you to see the overarching narrative that's being told. And, and, and so you're going to see that before our reading is the first section. Earlier in Mark chapter 10, we're going to talk about a story of Jesus when he is approached by a powerful, rich, young ruler. Uh, the second is going to be Jesus third prediction of his death and his resurrection and then we're going to end with the epic fight over Jesus cup and so we start with verse 17 of chapter 10 and we begin with a story that's always intrigued me how many of you have heard the story I'm not going to ask you to retell it but how many of you have heard the story of the rich young ruler coming before Jesus show of hands Okay, it's in three out of the four Gospels, the synoptics, and so you've probably heard it many times before. At this point in the story, we're just moments away from Easter. Palm Sunday is at the beginning of chapter 11. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River is a distant memory. He's taught thousands, he's fed, he's performed miracles, he's done all of this teaching, and he has been going so long, and the disciples have been following him for so long, that they really don't have a choice anymore about turning back. They have already been following him so long that they're invested, their resumes are out of date, they've even burned their bridges with their past employers, and in some cases with their family. And they've done all of this to follow Jesus. And at this point, he's wildly popular now. So it kind of makes sense, but it's becoming this popularity that is also very polarizing. And you're going to see how polarizing it is in the story of the rich young ruler. Look at verse 17. Here's how it begins. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before Jesus, and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, since most of you raised your hand, and I assume most of you did at home as well, uh, I just want to break down some of the misconceptions as we are very familiar with this story. There is no indication of any ill intentions at this point on the, on the side of, of this young man. He, he's not coming with any ill intention. If you look at all three gospel accounts, you're not going to see that. What you will learn is, is that he is young. You will learn that he is powerful, and you will learn that he's wealthy. And that actually says something to us right there, that a man who is so successful and wealthy and at such a young age is willing to get down on his knees in front of a Jewish rabbi. Like that in itself says something because powerful men don't do that, especially when they want something. They might schmooze you, they might tickle your ear, but they're not going to bow. And that's not what we have here. We've got a man who's willing to bow. He's honestly, earnestly, humbly desiring to follow Jesus. He's heard the story. He's heard the good news. He maybe has even witnessed some of the miracles. And he senses, maybe more important than any of that, that with everything he's accomplished in his young life, and he's got such success, that there's still something missing. There's still something missing. And it's not that he hasn't tried to find it, because not only does he have all this success in the world, he's also a good man. He's followed all of the rules. Just, just look at this, verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked, asked him. 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments that come from God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all of those things since I was a boy. And our response to that part of the story is usually to roll our eyes and go, yeah, right. (laughs) But look at all three accounts. Nobody argues. And so the only thing that we can assume here is that it's true. He really has followed all of these things. And I think that's pretty extraordinary because how many of us can look back on our life and say that we haven't done anything on that list? How many of us can say that we haven't done any of those things? Murder, adultery, now now just be careful, right? Because Jesus defined those things. He said that if you hate somebody, if you hold that anger, they're as good as dead. You're murdering them. Adultery can be done with your eyes. You can do both of those things without ever leaving your living room. (laughs) And so those are two. What else? Like, what else is on this list? Uh, What, stealing, lying, deceiving, dishonoring your parents? I mean, don't you need to do at least three of those in this world in order to get up to the top? <laughs> Aren't they just kind of a requirement? Nobody's, nobody's proud of it. I'm not going to ask you to list the ones you've done, but isn't the path to success messy sometimes? And so we think that's just the way life works. Just the way life works, and I'll make up for it later. I'll ask God for his forgiveness. I'll, I'll treat people better when, when I'm on the top than I did on my way to get there. Just, just think, right? Like, like you, you might not consider yourself rich. You might not consider yourself powerful. You might not consider yourself young. <laughs> but you're probably guilty of something on that list. We all are. I am. You ever cheat on your taxes? You ever embellish an answer to a question as you're interviewing for a new job? The reason I'm pointing this out is because this rich young ruler hasn't done any of those things. He's not guilty of any of that. And on top of it all, he is still more wealthy and more powerful and more influential and more successful in this world than you will ever be and than I will ever be. And on top of all of that, he got to where he is. Honestly, you're almost mad at the guy, aren't you? And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. And I can almost see, right? Like, you've got to fill in the blanks a little bit. What does it look like to look at someone as if to say, I love you? What words are coming out of the gaze of Jesus into the eyes of this humble, rich, successful young ruler who knows there's still something missing in his life and is at his knees before Jesus? What are his eyes saying? They're saying, you're good, I know you're good, and I'm so proud of you because I know the broken world that I came into to fix, and I know that it operates on a whole different set of rules, and you have worked so hard to follow the good commands of our God, and I also know that there's still something missing. There's still something missing. Verse 21, Jesus says, with eyes that love him, he says to the man, there's still something you lack. Go and sell everything And give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
And Jesus looked around. There's a lot of people listening to this conversation. And he said to the disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples, say it with me, they were amazed at his words. Now, that word amazed does not translate from the Greek the same way you probably use the word amazed. That was an amazing cup of coffee. That was an amazing slice of pizza. That's not what this word means. If you look in Acts chapter 9, and I think I preached on this not terribly long ago, remember when when Paul was still Saul and he was out killing Christians and he was on his way to Damascus and he was going to go there to arrest Christians, to have them killed, Christians being the followers of Jesus. And he's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus himself shows up to confront Paul in this blinding light, and he falls down. And the Greek word that's used to describe what they saw was amazed. This is more of a burst of painfully revealing light. Wow, on the ground, face in the dirt. And that's how the disciples felt when they watched what was about what was happening between Jesus and this young ruler. Verse 24, Jesus said to them again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? And again, amazed, different Greek verb, but it doesn't quite capture the meaning if that's the way you use the word. It's the same word found in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. You remember, remember this story? Jesus was a young boy, and it's the story that every parent loves to read over and over again because Mary and Joseph forgot Jesus in Jerusalem for a couple days. <laughs> yeah, it makes you feel better about your own shortcomings as a parent. And so several days go by. Finally, they find Jesus. And this same word, amazed, is used to describe their response when they first lay eyes on their son and he's sitting in the temple and he's okay. They were amazed. It's like gut punch, terrified, overwhelmed all at once. That's the disciples' response. Now, why is that? Remember, these men have left everything. They've left everything. There's no turning back. And just like you and me, they're not rich and they're not successful and they have not been perfect. They could never look to Jesus and tell them, tell him that they've followed all of the commands perfectly. They know they haven't, but better than that, they know that Jesus knows that they haven't. And so they're having a moment with God and they're thinking, if this guy can't get in, then how can I? I mean, do you know somebody like that in your life? Maybe they're not young, maybe they're not rich, but there's someone in your life that because you don't know everything about their life, you look at them and you think, well, they're a lot holier than they are than I am. And if they can get into heaven, well, that doesn't mean much for me. You have somebody like that in your life? And this is that guy, and Jesus told this guy that on his own might, he can't get in either. And if that's the case, then who can? And that's the question that, that we're all wondering. Verse 27, Jesus gave him an answer. He looked at them with those loving eyes, and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Amen? Right? Close your Bible and go home, because that's the answer we give, right? Peter was like, uh 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 no, no, that's not good enough. I still don't understand. Look at verse 28. Peter looked up and said, Jesus, well, it's almost like he's ignoring what he just said. 
We've left everything to follow you. I still don't understand. We've left it all. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times more. In this present age, in this life, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And here's where the narrative starts to turn. It's not a hopeless story. It might sound like a hopeless story on the surface. It's not a hopeless story. It would be a hopeless story if only guys like the rich young ruler got into heaven because that would leave you and me out. That would be hopeless. But Jesus says that everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome because in the kingdom of God, the beginning of everything is nothing. And a way that I, I read this week that illustrates this point better than I could myself was an article. It was in uh, The Atlantic. It's written by uh, New York Pastor Timothy Keller. I've quoted him many, many times. Um, and so some of you are very familiar with him and his work. And uh, what you may not be familiar with, though, is, is that this past year, um, he was diagnosed, right around the same time the pandemic began, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he wrote this article just about a week ago. And it's titled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And he talks about how everything that he's ever written, everything that he's ever preached, everything that he's ever counseled as a pastor has had to become real in the face of his own death. And, and I encourage you to read the whole article, but just, just a part of it I want to read to you. He writes this. His, his wife's name is Kathy, and he says, Since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we try to make heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. This is why it's so difficult for the rich to get in to heaven, as Jesus says. It's because they're so invested in their own efforts to find what is simply unattainable to find on our own. And, and Keller describes this in, in very real terms we can all relate to. He says it's like, like his wife. She loves vacationing. She loves going to comfortable, familiar places. She loves to get away and do that. The problem is that has become such a heaven to her that she longs to go to those places, and no sooner does she show up at that place, she's depressed because she knows that in just a couple of days she's going to have to go home. How many of you have ever felt that way when you go on vacation? Right? We, we kind of know this, right? Keller said his thing is the opposite. He, he wants to get home because he, he's found heaven in his accomplishments. And, and so he writes a new book. He preaches a new sermon. His church accomplishes or achieves something. And every single time they do, it's never what he is looking for. And he needs more. But on the face of death, he, he, he continues, he says, to our surprise and encouragement, as I'm looking at all of this and realizing it's all going to end, what, what we have been surprised and encouraged to learn, what Kathy and I have discovered, is that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. 
No longer are we burdening it with demands that are impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, the, from the sun and the water to flowers in a vase to our own embraces, sex, conversation, has brought more joy than ever. And this has taken us by surprise. See, there's the truth right there. Jesus wants us to give up our expectations of everything so that we might find everything in him. That's the point. He wants us to give up our expectations on everything, not to just give it away, but to receive it all back in him. He told the rich young ruler to sell everything, and that's not because that's a blanket prescription for all of us to leave and then follow. It's because he loved him. And he knew that after spending his entire young life so successful, trying to earn what he could never earn, this young man would never be able to enjoy the life that God desperately wants to give him. And I get that. I can totally relate to that. The more expectations that I put on my children, the less I enjoy my children. I mean, it's just a fact. The more expectations I have on them, the less I enjoy them. We do the same thing in our marriages. We do the same thing in our jobs. We do the same thing in our health. And I was thinking about it. I mean, haven't our expectations been such a root of so much frustration in the midst of this past year, right? At the beginning of, of COVID, we had all of, all of these expectations of what this was going to look like. It's only going to be a couple of weeks, right? It's only going to be a couple of weeks. I mean, I, I literally, I remember this. This is illustrated for me always if I look back at my calendar because at the very beginning of all this, the CDC came out with an eight-week period of time. They said it's going to be eight weeks. And so I put it in my calendar because I was ready to fill my calendar back up after that. And so I put it in there and, and I didn't have the heart or the faith, I don't think, because I was disappointed in my expectations being let go. I didn't have the faith to extend it every time they extended it. And now it's like I just got to put it on my whole calendar forever, right? How much of our frustration has come this last year from that? And this is hard. It's hard for everybody. Keller, Keller, <laughs> Didn't really get it, is what he says in his article, until he was diagnosed with cancer. And the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, they didn't really get it either until they literally watched him die on the cross. Which is why the next part of our passage reminds them of where he's going. Verse 32, as they were on their way up to Jerusalem with this conversation between Jesus and the rich young man in their minds, Jesus is leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now those are words we can use. Again, they took the 12, he, Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. He told them, third time, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be killed. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Resurrection. It's a beautiful thing, but you can't experience resurrection without dying first. Pastor Keller is experiencing the hope of the resurrection because he's literally dying. And what Jesus is saying is that in the same way you and I cannot enjoy the gifts of this life in this world as well as the life to come if we don't let go and die to ourselves first. And so he tells them all this. It's basic, right? We all get it now. But basic isn't easy. 
And the disciples proved that. Verse 35, James and John, right after all this, right? Like this story is kind of silly on its own, but in context, it's even sillier. James and John, sons of Zebedee, they, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Because he's a smart parent, right? <laughs> Not going to say yes yet. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. They're asking just like my kids, I want to drink from your cup. And just like I say to my kids, Jesus says to them, I don't think you're going to like it. I don't think you're going to like what's in it. And just like my kids, they respond and they say, yes, we will. Give it to us. And in love, Jesus answers and says to them, you will drink from the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, as the other ten disciples They became indignant with James and John. Why? Not because they thought James and John were being immature. They were mad at them because they wanted the cup too. They all wanted the cup, but not the cup that Jesus came to bring. And to conclude, I brought a cup. I brought a cup from my house. It's just a a simple cup. It's nothing special, just a plastic cup. Um, There's just one problem with this particular cup and that's that it has a small hole in the bottom. But, but that doesn't matter. I can still drink from this cup, right? You just fill it up. And you got to be careful, right? Just got to make sure you don't get it on yourself. You know, you got to do this dance. and Try to drink as much of it as I can, knowing that no matter how much it begins with, in the end, I can't keep it in the cup. And it's all eventually going to empty. Friends, this cup represents your life and my life. We are the cup, and God has breathed his life. He's poured out life into your cup, and because of sin, there's a hole in it. This is the brokenness that says that no matter how young or old you are, no matter how full it is or empty, eventually it will all run out in the end. No matter how much you can get down your throat, it's all going to empty. And so Jesus has an invitation for you. He has an invitation for the rich young ruler. He has an invitation for the disciples. And it's this, that that if that's a fact, if that's what's going to happen to you eventually, then why not pour yourself out right now? Why not choose to, to pour out inside of yourself into other broken vessels that have less inside of them than you do, that we're constantly pouring into one another, and then ultimately this is what baptism is. That when you're baptized, it's you coming before God and pouring out yourself as you literally die in the waters of baptism that you might come out, as Paul says in Galatians 3, clothed in the baptism of Jesus. See, that's the promise that he made to the two disciples. He said, you will drink from my cup and you will be baptized. 
And as we are baptized, as we die to ourselves and we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, he covers our holes. And why is that so important? It's because 2,000 years ago, God became a man. And John says in John chapter 1 that the light shined in the darkness and that the darkness has never been put out. And so as that life was poured into the body of Jesus 2,000 years ago, it didn't pour out because Jesus was perfect. He had no holes. But he came to take that life that was contained inside of him and pour it into you. And if he can't get it out through the holes of sin, there's only one other way that he could pour it into your body, and that is by allowing his body to be broken, that he might pour it into yours. And clothed in his love and his grace and his forgiveness, that's the eternal life that will never leave you thirsty, that will never leave you hungry. That's the eternal life that Jesus offers the woman in John chapter 4. Remember that story? The Samaritan woman who had had so many holes in her life. She had made so many mistakes and people were so mean to her that she was by herself as she was pulling water out of this well. And as she was pulling it out, Jesus came up and he said, I have water that if you allow me to pour it into you, it will well up and never leave you thirsty. And she said, give me that water. And Jesus said, yes. He said, yes. Just a short time from now, he's going to say yes on the night that he's betrayed on the final Passover. When he sits with the disciples and he breaks bread and says, this bread is my body broken for you. And then after the supper, he takes the cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. And after that, he's going to go to the cross and his body will be broken and his blood will be poured out all so that your cup and mine will be full forever. And this is what he meant in verse 45 when he said, for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so let's pray right now. Let's invite God to do that. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning broken vessels. Struck down, but as your word says, we are not destroyed. There may be a hole in the bottom, but the invitation that you give to us to drink from your cup comes as we are clothed in your grace, as we are baptized into your family considered sons and daughters of God. Help us not to wait until the end of our life. I, I, I just keep thinking about the illustration of this, this cup with a, with a hole in it and it's pouring out and, and God, I just come before you and I just admit that there are so many times in this world that I'm just feverishly trying to drink as much as I can without this awareness of the brokenness that's ultimately gonna leave it all behind anyway. 
expectations that this world would become something that it was never meant to be. That doesn't mean that you don't want to fill our cup. And that doesn't mean that you don't want to fill our cup to overflowing even right now. Is that not the story of Job? That he lost everything and in a way that, that, that God says you simply cannot comprehend. He is in the midst of it all ready to give him back tenfold everything that he had lost. God, would you help us to have the faith to pour ourselves out before you that we might receive what only you can give. That we might be like the woman at the well who says to Jesus, give me that water. And that we might hear your words when you say to her and to us, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 